right, turn to Psalm 145. We'll move into a series uh, when we get settled down here with all this, but Psalm 145, let's read the entire chapter. Scripture says, a psalm of praise of David, I will extol you, my God, O King, and I will bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you, and I will praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and highly to be praised, or greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall praise your works to another, and shall declare your mighty acts. On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wonderful works I will meditate. Men shall speak of the power of your awesome acts, and I will tell of your greatness. They shall eagerly utter the memory of your abundant goodness, and will shout joyfully of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and merciful. Slow to anger and great in loving kindness. The Lord is good to all, and his mercies are, are over all his works. All your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and your godly ones shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and talk of your power. To make known to the sons of men your mighty acts and the glory of the majesty of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion endures throughout all generations. The Lord sustains all who fall and raises up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you, and you give them their food in due time. You open your hand and satisfy the desire of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all his ways, and kind in all his deeds. The Lord is near to all who call upon him, to all who call upon him in truth. He will fulfill the desire of those who fear him. He will also hear their cry and will save them. The Lord keeps all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. My mouth will speak of the praise of the Lord, and all flesh shall bless his holy name forever and ever. Well, I'll tell you, this chapter definitely takes us to the next level, if not the third heaven itself. It takes us away from our earthbound existence and our selfish interest in life. And we find out in this chapter that really what life is all about is the Lord himself. It's all about him, not about us. You read Psalm 145 and meditate on it long enough, and you will have to conclude that we have far too much pettiness in the body of Christ. I hear so many things that are just so petty. Far too much focus on trivial matters, far too little focus on the glory of God. Far too much emphasis on personal agendas, far too little emphasis on the majesty of God. Far too little uh, time spent with the spotlight on me. That's where the spotlight usually is. I want it to be on me, often. And far too little time with the spotlight on Christ. This is a self-absorbed, self-centered, self-elevating generation. And that's my assessment. And I'll tell you what, that is a far cry from what the scriptures teach about the majestic, awe-inspiring theme uh, that runs from one end of the scriptures to the next, and that is the praise of our glorious and worthy and marvelous Lord. If you read the Bible, entire Bible, that is, some people don't read the entire Bible. If you read the entire Bible, you cannot miss it. It's such a prominent theme. Let me give you a few samples of the theme of the praise of the Lord from beginning to end. For example, and I'll just read these. You don't have to try to run me down on this because we're going to keep moving. Exodus chapter 15, verses 1 and 2, after the miracle of the Red Sea, Moses and the sons of Israel sang this song to the Lord, a song of victory. And they said, 
I will sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. The horse and its rider he has hurled into the sea. Verse 11, same chapter. Who is like you among the gods, O Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in praises, working wonders? What about Psalm 34, verse 1? And we skipped a lot of territory. We could have covered more verses. David says in Psalm 34, 1 to 3, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My mouth will make its boast in the Lord. The humble will hear it and rejoice. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. Isaiah 43, verse 20. The Lord says, The people whom I have formed for myself, they will declare my praise. Ephesians 1, 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Revelation 4.11. Worthy are you, O Lord, our, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and because of your will they existed and were created. And we could quote many, many more verses, but just one more. In Luke chapter 19, there's a crowd of disciples gathering together there. And they're praising God with a loud voice because of all the miracles they've seen Jesus do. You know, Jesus is making his triumphant entry into the city of Jerusalem. And the people were shouting, here's what they shouted, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Well, the Pharisees were none too happy about that, not at all. They were so preoccupied with their own self-righteousness that they said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But Jesus answered, I tell you, if these become silent, the stones will cry out. Sometimes I think the stones might do a better job of praising God than we do. We're so taken up with our small-minded pursuits and our own glory that we take, the, oftentimes we take the glory to God's name and try to seize it for ourselves. Don't forget what the order is, little man, big God. And don't, it's not the other way around. Meditate on Psalm 145 and seriously and see if you can retain that selfish, petty attitude. Just try it. How about we get back to what we're supposed to be doing, praising the Lord, putting the focus on Him, Him alone, His glory, His majesty. Now, this week and next week, this was going to be one week, this week, but it turned into two weeks as near the week neared the end, and I realized I, I'm not going to do this chapter in one week. But this week and next week, I want us to consider two main ideas from this psalm. First of all, the resolve to praise God, the resolve to praise God. And secondly, the reasons, plural, to praise God. First of all, the resolve to praise God. Look at verses 1 and 2. David says, I will extol you, my God, O King, and I will bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you, and I will praise your name forever and ever. Now, the last six psalms of what we call the Psalter, the book of Psalms, are psalms of praise. That's how the psalms end. It's a very fitting ending. Psalm 145 begins that section, a psalm of pure praise to the Lord. It's been called a number of things, this psalm, that are, uh, for example, it's been called a, the exquisite psalm. It's been called the glory of the Old Testament, this psalm. It's been called a magnificent ode to praise. It's been called the crown jewel of praise. This noble doxology, that's my favorite. And I am sure, with all that being said, I will not do justice to this psalm. You look at the, the title right above verse 1. It says, a psalm of praise of David. It's the only psalm that actually has a title like that. 
Now, there are many types of psalms. For example, psalms of repentance, psalms of sorrow, psalms about the king, psalms about wisdom, psalms about people making a pilgrimage to the temple, other types of psalms. But this psalm is reserved for one purpose and one purpose only, and that is to give praise to our God, to bring attention to him. He's to be held in high esteem. He alone is worthy of praise. No one else is. The, the author uh, is obviously David. It says that in the heading. Uh, in 2 Samuel 23.1, he's called the sweet psalmist of Israel. He wrote many of the psalms. Psalms were the hymn book of Israel. Now, let me just say this about music and singing in the church and giving praise to God. The music that we sing here, the music that churches uh, that we sing in churches uh, should be, in the songs that we sing, should be giving proper praise to God and proper glory to God. That's what they should be doing. But there's so much blather out there, so much mumbo-jumbo out there that when it comes to music, it's nauseating to me. And, you know, you ask yourself the question, where are the noble words of praise uh, that reflect what the Bible teaches about God, about Christ, about the Holy Spirit? Where are they? I doubt... I doubt seriously we'll ever capture the majesty of the hymns, the great hymns of the faith a couple hundred years ago. I don't think we'll ever capture that majesty again. And I'm not talking about a music style so much as I am talking about a music that expressed a high and noble uh, view of God. And I'm glad our church focuses on that kind of music. Now, as we look into Psalm 145, I don't think I'd be off base. If I chose, you could argue with me, maybe, I'm going to choose verse 21 to state the theme of the entire psalm. Verse 21, the final verse says, David says, My mouth will speak of the praise of the Lord, and all flesh will bless his holy name forever and ever. And I think that's what we have here. We're giving praise. David's giving praise. Others are giving praise in this psalm to the Lord who richly deserves it. This is the purest of activities that a person can engage in to give praise to the Lord and the glory to his name. That's true worship. We put ourselves aside to focus only on him totally on him and on his attributes, on his acts. In Psalm 145, David is clearly and steadfastly resolved to praise God. This is a worthy pursuit, a worthy pursuit for all of us to engage in. Notice the object of this resolve. Verse 1, David says, I will extol you, my God, O King. I'm going to extol you, my God, O King. Let me first explain the word extol since we don't typically use that word in our conversation. It means to elevate to a high place. It means to lift up. Praising God is lifting him up, giving him the proper place which is due, uh, uh, which is high and lifted up. Remember the vision Isaiah saw in Isaiah chapter 6? And it says there, Isaiah says, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted. And if you read, grew up with the King James Version, you can't escape the phrase, he's high and lifted up, which is one of my favorite phrases ever. This is the one we give unrelenting praise to, the Lord. He's high and lifted up. Now, in one sentence, verse 1, David has, given, has combined two thoughts together, the ideas of his, of his very personal relationship to the Lord, along with the recognition that God is the king. He is the sovereign of the universe. And every believer can say the same. On the one hand, he's my God, and I bear a relationship with him. On the other hand, he is the king, the very powerful king in the universe. David is... Put these two thoughts together in verse 1. Now, there have been many kings in history and many rulers in history and still today who are very stern, were very stern, are very stern, very aloof 
do not care, quite frankly, if their subjects or their citizens live or die. Think of North Korea, for example. That's always been the case. King Nebuchadnezzar comes to mind, who had a dream, and in Daniel chapter 2, he would have his nobles executed if they could not tell him the interpretation of the dream. That's how strict it was. In fact, it went beyond that. He said, oh, I forgot the dream. You have to tell me the dream as well and the interpretation, or you're going to be executed, really, in a bad way. And uh, there have always been kings like this, threatening kings, mean-spirited kings, unreasonable kings throughout history, even to this, this day, uh, rulers like that. But our king is different. He is a gracious king, a loving king, an all-wise ruler who blesses those under his rule. Now, if people reject his rule, then they have to face his retribution. And there are many people who despise this ruler, this ruler that we love. They feel about him the same way the evil people and the Gospels felt about Christ. Their thought is, like in the parable in Luke 19, we will not have this man to rule over us. They don't want that at all. But the, for the one who truly knows God as David does, and as we do, we do want him to rule over us. We're only too glad to have him and to be in his kingdom and to have his rule. And so we address him as David did, O king. Now keep in mind also that David was a king. David the king is addressing his king. David's the king of Israel. He recognizes but that there's a king infinitely superior to himself, and that is the king of kings, the Lord. David rules over a plot of land called Israel. That was given to him by God. But God rules over the heavens and the earth, and David knows this. And so he pledges his allegiance to this king, and we pledge our allegiance to the same king. At the same time, I hope everyone listening to me tonight can say, he's my God. He's my God. He's my Christ. He's my Lord. His spirit indwells me. This is the one we resolve to praise. He's the object of our praise. Notice also the strength of this resolve. The strength of this resolve. If you look carefully at verses 1 and 2, you will notice a phrase repeated again and again. As a matter of fact, repeated four times. The phrase is, I will, David says in these two verses, I will extol you, I will bless your name, I will bless you, I will praise your name. I will, I will, I will, again and again. Verse 6, he says, I will tell of your greatness. Verse 21, my mouth will speak of the praise of the Lord. Now listen closely to David as he is saying these things, as he's writing these things. Can you hear the resolve in his voice? I can hear it. I, I was going over this, and I thought to myself, I can hear the resolve in his voice. I can almost hear him talking. I can hear the desire and the passion to give glory to God. I can hear in his words determination, determination to praise the Lord. I can hear enthusiasm for the Lord. I can see, I can sense his love for the Lord as I read these words. David's heart is clearly set on magnifying the Lord. And I believe people say, well, why was David called a man after God's own heart? And I believe one reason is this. He was always wanting to praise the Lord, always resolved to praise the Lord. If you read about his life in the scriptures, you will soon discover that's always been his resolve. He did that constantly. Again and again, we read the words of praise to his God and King. We could read many of the Psalms. And we will see David was a man who praised the Lord. Now, many people make resolutions each year, and after about two weeks, they break them. If they make it that far. By the way, that should not be the case. It doesn't have to be that way. Don't let anybody sell you a bill of goods. Oh, I can't do this. Yes, you can do it with God's help. 
Jonathan Edwards made 70 resolutions uh, when he was 18 years of age. And he sought to keep those resolutions in his entire life. And, he look, and I think he reviewed them every week. His first resolution, here it is, resolved that I will do whatsoever I think to be most to God's glory. That's what I want to do. Whatever is most to God's glory, that's what I want to do. That was his first resolve. Men and women of God are people of resolve. They want to please the Lord. They want to exalt the Lord. They do that because, like David, their heart overflows with praise for the Lord. And so they want to praise him. And they want to, they're resolved to do so. Notice next the consistency of this resolve. The consistency of this resolve in verse 2. David says, every day I will bless you. Now, what does it mean to bless God? To bless God means to, the word bless means literally to bend the knee, to kneel down before him, to humble ourselves in his presence. The pray, and so you can see the praise of God demands utter humility. Here's the point. God is great. We're to humble ourselves before him. You remember Mike this morning explained humility in Ephesians chapter 4. He said it's to have a low view of self. That's a great definition. To have a low view of self. In fact, the I was looking at another translation while Mike was preaching. Sorry about that, Mike. The King James. I was hung up on the King James lately. And uh, it said lowliness in that, in that verse in Ephesians 4. A low view of self. Not, not, not what our generation is known for. Not what the message is that goes out to the people in this generation. But that's what it, it means to bless the Lord. To bow before him. Humble ourselves before him. How often should we bless him? Annually? Monthly? Weekly? David says, every day. Every day I will bless you. Every day. It's not every day. Another day God has given us to bless him, to praise him. I, I know a lot of us, people are not taught this. Or not, they don't think in terms of, well, today's a day that we should bless the Lord and praise the Lord. They think in terms of, we think in terms of, we need to go about our business today. But David says, every day I will bless you. Psalm 113.3. Think about Psalm 113.3. I'm going to read it to you. From the rising of the sun to the going down of the same, the Lord's name is to be praised. From beginning to end, that's what it says. Have you ever thought of your entire day as a day, every day, in which you're going to praise the Lord that day? The entire day? From the rising of the sun to the going down of the same. Think how different our lives would be. If we did that, think how we would not complain about our circumstances, would not be in petty arguments and selfishness and all this stuff. Think how it would be totally different that we would praise God for his many blessings to us. If you make that a daily habit, that's going to be life changing for you. Notice next the permanency of this resolve, the permanency of this resolve. Verse one, the second part. David says, I will bless your name forever and ever. Verse two, the second half. And I will praise your name forever and ever. Praise. We talk about, we use the word praise often. It means, uh, it means to be bright. It means to radiate. <clears throat> so David is literally, literally radiating the glory of God in the sense of giving praise to him. Christ is the outshining of God. David is giving praise to God. You could say he's bragging and boasting in God. You could say it that way. To praise God is to brag about him, to boast about him. Now we know we should never boast about ourselves. Paul said in Galatians 6.14, May it never be that I should boast, except in what? Save in what? Except in the cross of Christ, right? 
and the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so we should not brag on ourselves. However, the scripture encourages us and exhorts us to brag and boast about the Lord. That is perfectly acceptable, and we should be doing that. That's what praise is. I don't know how many of you know the name W.A. Criswell. He used to preach and uh, be the pastor of a big church, First Baptist Church of Dallas, I think in the 20th century. And uh, always wore the white suit and the, uh, whatever that's called there. And uh, he would preach through books of the Bible like we do. He would preach expositorily through books of the Bible, and people would say, go to his church, and they'd say, well, they'd ask each other, well, when did you join the church? Well, I joined in 1 Timothy. Someone else would say, I joined in Ezekiel, because he was always preaching through these books, and that's what they tied it down to, which is pretty neat to say it that way. He used to preach through entire books of the Bible, and he once preached through the Gospels straight in a row, Mike, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, right in a row, he preached through them. And he, later he said about that experience, he said, I, get to, I got to everlastingly brag on Jesus. That's what he said. Because the whole time he's talking about the Gospels, and he talked about Christ the whole time. That's what it is all about, bragging on the Lord. Now, just how long will David do this? Give praise to God. David will praise God, it says, forever and ever. There's no ending to this activity at all. It goes on and on. It begins here and now on earth. It doesn't start in heaven. It shouldn't start in heaven for you. It should begin right here and now, today, if you haven't done it, here on earth and continue throughout eternity in heaven. And don't wait until you get to heaven to start. Be resolved that you're going to be a person who praises our God and King. And so we have, need to have this resolve to praise God. Secondly, the reasons to praise God. And that will take the rest of the chapter, verses 3 on. The reasons to, pray God, to praise God. Now, there are so many reasons to praise Him. Where do we even start? Where do we even start? Matt Redmond wrote the song, Bless the Lord, O my soul. And he says in his song, There are 10,000 reasons my heart can find to praise Him. By which he means, let me interpret for Matt Redmond, he means there's an infinite number of reasons to praise God. And I want to point out several in the psalm. The first reason to praise God is, is because of his greatness. His greatness. Look at verse 3. It says in verses 3 to 6, Great is the Lord and highly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall praise your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wonderful works I will meditate. Men shall speak of the power of your awesome acts and I will tell of your greatness. You can see a word that comes through again and again in this little section. The word great, the word greatness in connection with the Lord is mentioned three times in this section. Four times if you translate the word highly as greatly, which you can do quite a bit. And so we're going to talk about the greatness of God. That's a reason to praise him. First of all, the greatness of his person. In verse 3, it says, great is the Lord. Now, you know people, and you hear this all the time, you know people like to think of themselves as being great, and they like to tell, tell, tell other people that they're great, talk about other people who are great, always hearing this. We say, that actor is great. Or we might say, that doctor is great. Or we might say, that athlete is great. Some people will even say, that preacher is great. And we'll say these kind of things. There was a former hockey player by the name of Wayne Gretzky who was called the great one. The reason he was called that was because many think, probably rightly so, that he was the greatest hockey player in history, and he was called the great one. But Wayne Gretzky, as great of a hockey player as he was, was a sinner, just like everybody else. No different. 
When we compare ourselves to God, there is no human being who is great. None. You know, when we say someone is great, there's always a disclaimer we have to put in there. We might say, well, that mechanic is great, but maybe he's dishonest. You know, with people, there's always a catch, isn't there? There's always a history. There's always an issue. There's always a sin nature, but not with God. There is only pure greatness. Greatness in the, in the truest sense of the word. And that's why it says here, the Lord is highly or greatly to be praised. Since God is great, it is, it is a given that the praise of him is to be great. We should match the greatness of God with the, the great, with the praises of God. We have a high view of God, so we should speak the high praises of God. In fact, we should lavish praises on him. I can't help but think of Ephesians 1 again. Mike's been going through Ephesians on Sunday morning, which continues to repeat that theme to the praise of the glory of his grace again and again, this refrain, because Paul is just taken up with the glory of God. Verse 3, Psalm 145 goes on to say, His greatness is unsearchable. What a statement. His greatness is unsearchable. One person explained the phrase this way, The full extent of God's greatness and power is beyond human comprehension, beyond human comprehension. We cannot comprehend it. We don't. Now, we have the knowledge of God's revelation of himself in the scripture. We know what the Bible teaches about him. But we can never plumb the depths of the greatness of our infinite God. We can never plumb those. It eludes us somehow. Job 9.10, Job said that God does great things, unfathomable things and wondrous things without number. Psalm 106, verse 2 says, who can speak of the mighty deeds of the Lord or can show forth all his praise? Who can do this? In fact, in other words, no mortal is even adequate to, full, to, to praise God to the full extent. We can't even do that. Thankfully, he accepts something lesser than, than, our, than a totally adequate attempt to praise him because he knows we're but dust. He accepts our praise. Paul said it this way in Romans eleven thirty three, oh Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. And it says many other scriptures we could quote. So the greatness of God's person. Secondly, the greatness of his works. Verses 4 to 6. One generation shall praise your works to another, shall declare your mighty acts on the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wonderful works I will meditate. Men shall speak of the power of your awesome acts. I will tell of your greatness. They shall utterly eager the memory of your abundant goodness and will shout joyfully of your righteousness. The things that God does in this section, verses 4 to 6, not verses 4 to 7, are referred to in different ways. For example, they're referred to as his mighty acts in verse 4. His works are referred to as his mighty acts in verse 4. Verse 5, they're called his wonderful works. Verse 6, they're called his awesome acts. Similar language is used of Jesus in the New Testament. For example, Luke 8, 39 tells us that the demon man, uh, the, the man possessed of a demon in Gadara was delivered by Christ. And it says he went away proclaiming throughout the whole city what great things Jesus had done for him. And so we have these, these mighty acts, these wonderful works, these awesome acts that are spoken of here, the greatness of his works. Now, we don't want to keep this knowledge from people. We want to spread this knowledge. Verse 4 says, one generation shall praise your works to another. It's, it's just assumed that that should be the case. Each generation is responsible to teach the next generation the praise of God's works. You know, if the generations prior to us had not done this, for example, if there had been no Reformation, 
I wonder what would have happened in history after that point. If they had not carried the ball and, and, and handed it off to us, down through time, through gener- where would that leave us today? You know, many in history have failed to pass the baton. Many have failed, although God will see to it his word gets out. But let's not be that generation that fails to communicate the truth to the next generation, the truth of God's glory. We have a duty to our children, to our grandchildren, to our great-grandchildren, to praise God for all his mighty acts. We have a duty to show them the mighty acts of God in Scripture. We have a duty to talk to them about what God has done in our own lives. We have a duty to tell them what God can do in their lives as well. This is our responsibility. You know, there's a very sad account in the Bible, Judges chapter 2, talks about two generations, the generation of Joshua and the one that followed. Judges 2, 7 says, The people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who survived Joshua who had seen all the great work of the Lord which he had done for Israel. Sounds so far so good. But Judges 2.10 in the same chapter says, that generation died. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord, nor yet the work which he had done for Israel. How sad is this? Somewhere along the way, somebody fumbled the ball. The next generation was a total disaster. Read the book of Judges. And then it goes on and on and on like that. You know, whoever we might fault in that scenario... Let's, this generation, let's get the message out to the next generation. That's our, that's our duty, that is our responsibility. We must do this. Look at verses 5 and 6. It talks about, David says, On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wonderful works, I will meditate. <clears throat> David is returning here to kingly language. He says he wants to meditate on the glorious splendor of God's majesty, on the wonderful works of the king. Now, we often talk about meditation in the sense of, well, that means to ponder and to contemplate, and that is true. But it also means, uh, has the idea of conversing or talking aloud. And who are you talking to? You're talking to yourself. You're telling yourself, as the word informs you, this is what, who the Lord is. As I was studying Psalm 145 this week, it grew on me the whole week. And I thought to myself, this is, I told Jeff this morning, this chapter is amazing. I never saw, I, I've read it many times. I never saw it like I saw this week. This chapter is absolutely astounding. What it says. And it grows on you. And you talk to yourself, yeah, the Lord is worthy to be praised. There's none greater. Why are we so petty about everything all the time? You talk to yourself about the Lord and how glorious and how wonderful he is. Glorious having the connotation of weighty. One who is worthy. And so, this is a, God is a weighty subject. The weightiest of all subjects is God himself. There's no subject more worthy of our meditation than God's majesty and God's wonderful works. What better subject to think about? None. If we thought more about him, think about this. If we thought more about him, we would not have the time or inclination to be so self-absorbed, so self-centered. It would change everything. It would change everything in our perspective. A God-centered life begins with a mind and a heart that is meditating on God himself, the person of God. But our preoccupation with ourselves, we're always preoccupied with ourselves. It keeps us away from this lofty subject. It is the loftiest of subjects. But if we engage in this practice, actually do this, we're going to stop setting our, th- our affections on things on the earth and start setting them on the things of heaven. In verse 6, <clears throat> uh, men shall speak of the power of your awesome acts. David says, I'll tell of your greatness. 
These awesome acts that men speak of have to do with acts of judgment, like, for example, the global flood in Genesis, the drowning of Pharaoh's men in the Red Sea, the plagues of Egypt, many more things. Those acts need to be spoken of as well as God's acts of goodness and kindness and love. God's both the God of love and judgment. We need to tell the whole truth to everybody. And as for David himself, he's only too happy to tell. He's only too happy to tell of God's greatness. And, and David tells us here, God is great in his person. He's great in his works. We should meditate on these things. And as a result, we'll do what the chapter says, what we just read. We'll praise him. We'll declare him. We'll speak of him. And we'll tell of his greatness. It all starts with that meditation. And so the first reason we praise God in this chapter is because of his greatness. Secondly, because of his goodness. His goodness in verses 7 to 10. Now, when I was a child, I was taught to pray this way before lunch. God is good. I'm sorry. God is great. God is good. Let us thank him for our food. And I still think that is a great prayer to play because it's such great truth. Some would say I still pray that prayer for the meal. And that's okay if I did because God is great. God is good. Not only is God great, though, he's good also. Verse 7 speaks of the abundant goodness of God. Verse 9 speaks of his universal goodness. Verse 7 and 8, his goodness is abundant. It says in verse 7, they shall eagerly utter, probably they as the people of, of the one generation, talking to the next generation of verse 4, continuing on in the context, they, those people shall eagerly utter the memory of your abundant goodness. They will shout joyfully of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and merciful. And he goes on. He's not only good, we find out here he's abundantly good. There's so many adjectives here that give such lavish, such praise on God. His goodness is overflowing. It's abundant. This news needs to be trumpeted by us. That's what it says in verse 7. Verse 7 says, they shall utter, eagerly utter this truth. That's such a rich, rich phrase. It means to pour forth or to gush out or to bubble, bubble over when you're, with your words as if the message of God's abundance of goodness is bubbling forth from a fountain or from a spring is the idea. This is a truth that needs to be etched in our minds so deeply lodged that when we open our mouth, that's what comes out. The praise of God. We, we come out, it comes out of our mouth, the words burst forth, God is good. Because what's stored in the memory, he talks about the memory here. What's stored in the memory is what's going to come out of the mouth. Jesus said out of the heart, the mouth speaks. Can't help but think of Tim Borland. Some of you knew Tim Borland, who died uh, probably in his 40s, who used to say, God is good all the time. He always said that, and he was right. Verse 7 follows up on that thought by stating that people will shout joyfully of God's righteousness. The two go together, God's righteousness and God's goodness. Go together. W. Graham Scroge said this, an old commentator. He said, the goodness and righteousness of God can never be separated Righteousness without goodness would be harsh. It'd be harsh. And goodness without righteousness would be wrong, he says. You know, in a world filled with evil, like the one we live in, on, with evil on every hand, and with the sin nature we all possess, and with Satan running amok, our one source of righteousness is God himself. There's no other righteousness to be found. He is righteous. In the New Testament, Paul will say of Christ in 2 Corinthians 5.21, he knew no sin. And from that righteous character flows his righteousness to those who are saved. They're credited with the righteousness of Christ. Thank goodness. Thank the Lord for that. 
It's 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made him Christ who knew no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And that offers for anyone who bows before the Lord and Savior and trusts him. God's righteousness is something to shout about, it says in, in verse 7. This is meant to be a celebration. Verse 7 is celebratory, is the idea. God's abundant goodness is eagerly being uttered. His righteousness is being shouted joyfully. That's a celebration, is what the intent of the, of the verse is. And the celebration continue, continues in verse 8. Verse 8, the Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and great in loving kindness. The, the Lord is good to all. Verse 9. Uh, and so this continues in verse 8. Verse 8 should be familiar to all readers of the Old Testament. It's repeated often. You'll see it throughout the Old Testament. It starts originally in Exodus 34, 6, when God passed before Moses and he said, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth. That's Exodus 34. A couple chapters before that, Exodus 32, the people had made a golden calf and they worshipped it. And God, being of a righteous character, verse 7, had to judge some of those people. And he does. He could have wiped them out entirely, but he did not because of his grace, because he's gracious. He, could have, he did not abandon them. He's gracious. He's merciful. We're ungrateful sinners, but he shows us favor if we repent that we don't earn. He shows us mercy we don't deserve. And he's not a tyrant. He doesn't act on a whim. He doesn't act, he's not one who wears his emotions on his sleeves. He is long-suffering, it says. Not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. In verse 8, we see that word great again. This time, it says he's great in loving kindness. That, is, that word used throughout the Old Testament is talking about his loyal love, his faithful, loyal love to his people. That is in spite of our often disloyal, unfaithful lack of love to him. In spite of all that, he's faithful to his people. Do you see why it says he's great in loving kindness? and why he's abundant in, in, abundant in goodness, he must be to deal with this fallen human race. We need grace that is greater than our sins, and so it says these things of him. His goodness is abundant. Secondly, his goodness is universal. Verses 9 and 10, the Lord is good to all, and his mercies are, are over all his works. And all your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and your godly ones shall bless you. He's not just good to some people. He's actually good to all people. That's what it says here. The Lord is good to all. In fact, the word all is used approximately 13 times in this chapter, again and again, which tells us that his goodness is universal. The whole world actually benefits from what the Lord has done. Even if they, the majority reject him, they still benefit from his goodness in many ways. Verse 9 says his mercies are, are over all his works. In other words, all he, that he has done, all that he still does is saturated in his mercy. His intent is to be merciful to people. But sadly, the human race, including all of us, chose sin, and the world lives under a curse. Even then, God shows mercy to the world. Acts 17.25 says, He himself gives to all life and breath and all things. And the works of God themselves give thanks to him. Or you could render that, the works of God shall praise you, O Lord. The very works of God, such as creation, give him praise. You think of Psalm 19.1, the heavens declare the glory of God. And it should go without saying that the Lord God, Lord's godly ones, in verse 10, they will bless him. That's what godly people do, they bless the Lord. That's what we should be doing. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 12.3, no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Those who are indwelt by the Spirit, they say 
Jesus is my Lord, and I want to bless his name. This is what godly people do. And so God's goodness is abundant and universal. It touches everyone in some way. God is great, God is good, and we should praise him for that. We will pick this up next week, and we'll start from verse 11. But let me say this in closing. I want to, I've never done this before. I want to dedicate this message, never dedicated a message to anybody, and next week's message to Sandy's sister and to my sister-in-law, Sharon Ostoff, because I don't think I knew this until Friday. And uh, as I was telling Sandy about, well, she's asked, what are you doing? Well, Psalm 145. A couple of years ago, her uh, 28-year-old daughter, Kara, our niece, died of cancer. And I didn't know this until the other day, but in the last few minutes of her life, Sharon was reading this psalm, Psalm 145. And I, I tell you, <clears throat> I, we were there at the house. I didn't know this was happening. I can think of no better words for Kara to have heard as uh, she went to be with the Lord than these. Psalm 145. Carol will be praising the Lord for eternity, and we will praise him with her. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we are grateful for all that you've done for us, so many things. We owe everything to you, our very existence, our life, our salvation, our direction in life, our guidance. Uh, all that we have, all that we are is because of you. Uh, we claim nothing of our own. We pray that we would give you the praise and glory you deserve. And we pray that the people that are listening will do the same. May we praise you every day of our lives. We praise in Christ's name. Amen.